I realized that when we're doing well and when we have momentum is the time to really accelerate it if we can. And I think that comes from just riding the wave before a few times and then like the wave stops <laughs> and then you come crashing down and have, you know, low growth for a period after that. So in times like this where things are going well, like, yeah, I kind of pat myself on the back and say, that's cool. But then I say, like, how do we get here and how can we do a bunch more of whatever that was to, to keep going? Because, yeah, the, the shit's going to hit the fan one of these days. And if we have just a bunch of things in motion to help prevent that, then I feel more safe that like the business is stable and predictable and stuff. Welcome to Tiny Seed Tales. I'm your host, Rob Walling. I'm a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Tiny Seed, the first startup accelerator designed for bootstrappers. This is the second episode of the first season, where I follow a founder through his struggles, victories, and failures as he builds his startup. Today, I follow up with Craig Hewitt of Castos, one of nine startups chosen for this year's Tiny Seed Accelerator Batch. I recommend listening to our first episode with Craig if you haven't already, as he tells us a story of Castos and gives some background about himself. How's your week been? Yeah, the week has been really good, man. We uh, we moved startups for the rest of us over to uh, using Seriously Simple Podcasting, which honestly was a pretty big, like challenging edge case for us. Um, hmm. You guys have 480 episodes and want to include most of them in the RSS feed, which does a lot of things to like breaking typical like WordPress server responses. Um, so we did some kind of custom development that is really helpful in the plugin. Um, but it was, you know, a solid, solid part of a couple of days for me, which was cool because we got the chance to kind of exercise our development muscles and product stuff. And a lot of the stuff we've been doing other than that is getting our new marketing site ready. And it is finally ready. It's going to go live Monday. We're talking on like late Friday right now. It's going to go live on Monday and I'm super jazzed about it. It it looks beautiful and I have no doubt that like our conversions and engagement will go up because of it. So it's, um, I, I'm counting it a win already, even if it's not a disaster or whatever. <laughs> Later in this episode, we're going to dive into the website redesign and what he hopes it will do to increase his numbers. Last time we talked, you may remember that one of his biggest challenges was hiring a growth marketer, a role he's never hired before. I was curious what happened since we last spoke, which was about two weeks ago. Yeah, so uh, I think two things have really happened since then. Uh, one is, you know, I've been kind of struggling in my mind with the thought that I need to hire a single person that is really, really, really good at everything. And come to the realization, not surprisingly, probably that that's just not possible. And so kind of realize now, okay, I can't hire somebody that's perfect at every aspect of marketing. So we need to find somebody that is really good at the places that I think will have the most impact for us. Um, and to me, I think in most businesses, that's in most SaaS businesses, I think it's almost always like content and community and inbound and not things like SEO and paid acquisition. I mean, I think those things can amplify the base of what you have, which is like good, natural, inbound, organic growth. Um, and that's kind of our plan is to, to have things like paid acquisition accelerate that growth a little bit. But we need to have a really good organic growth engine. And so I interviewed several people, actually really liked one person that was like a paid acquisition specialist more than anything else and kind of realized that person just wasn't the right fit for us. Um, 
since then have brought another person kind of all the way through our interview process, and I really like them. Um, she is uh, an experienced marketer on both sides, both like the content and inbound side, and has done a fair amount of paid acquisition. And then when you asked her, when I asked her in our interview what her strong suit was, it was actually email marketing, which is something I, I guess she's kind of done in both both of her kind of previous marketing roles, um, which is a cool thing because we we do it pretty poorly right now. <laughs> so thinking, you know, hey, how can we get you know new subscribers and nurture them through the funnel and convert them better? That's a really cheap way to convert customers, I think, and and effective probably. So. We're moving her to like a final phase in the interview process, and um, I'm really anxious to see how that works. Because on paper, I think she she looks like a really top notch candidate. Has it been a hard decision so far um, between yeah. <laughs> her and other people? It has. Tell me about that. Yeah. So the the hard part really up until now has been kind of this uncertainty on my end about like the kind of person we want to bring in. Um, because like, I'm really hoping and anxious that we can make paid acquisition work as a, as a growth driver. But I kind of also know that we need a really strong like base of, of organic growth. Um, and so like in my mind trying to say like, how can we find somebody that can do this really well, both sides of that coin. And I kind of just said, we can just hire like an AdWords consultant and then bring in someone who's really good at the organic stuff. And so the, she is the first person that really excelled at all the organic and conversion-based stuff. And so that was like, everyone else has been really good, actually. We've, I've interviewed, like done video interviews with four people, including her. Uh, and the other three were really good, but almost all of them were like SEO or paid acquisition focused. Did you do a lot of sifting? I mean, did you get a, a big stack of applicants and you, and you pulled these four out of it? Or was it a small number of applicants, but everyone was, was pretty qualified? So we got about 100 applications. You know, like half of them were just not a good fit. Um, we, did a, we did a couple of things I think were, were interesting. One is um, we're using Breezy HR as like a applicant tracking system. And they have the ability to have the person record uh, like an up to a two minute video of themselves. So we, we made it optional, but as one of the like a application fields and anybody that didn't do that obviously was like automatically eliminated. Cause like, if you can't turn the webcam on to film yourself for a minute to, to talk to me about why you think you're a good fit for this role, then you're probably not a good fit for this role. But then other things like their job experience and stuff like that. Like the biggest thing we were looking for was like previous SaaS ideally, or like online product or service sales and marketing experience. And so if people didn't have that, they were excluded. And then I sent them five questions, uh, just an email to, to you know, take like an hour and, and research some things and respond. And from there, I filtered out a bunch more people and then interviewed these five people. So this continues to be Craig's biggest challenge for a number of reasons. One is that this is a crucial hire for the growth of the company. Another is that with a team of only four or five people, every hire matters a lot. But if it works, it will free him up to work on high-priority projects that he doesn't have time for right now. One quick glossary term, Craig uses the word ARPU a few times, which is the acronym ARPU, or Average Revenue Per User. Yeah, so I think that's still our biggest kind of immediate challenge, um, just because I think this person will be like the cornerstone of 
growth for us. And getting the right person in to own and manage that is a huge deal for a four-person company, <laughs> you know, four-person yeah. and two part-time people. Uh, so getting the right person in to own that whole part of the business is is huge and really kind of scary and intimidating for me. And after that, I think the the focus for me is going to move back to a lot of the, the product and some of the like the SaaS metrics of like increasing ARPU because that's where like we can really make a big difference in the business is like changing pricing, adding kind of feature-based or feature-gated tiers um, and getting our ARPU from, you know, 17 or $18 to $30 or something would, would just, you know, obviously like almost double the business. Um, and so a lot of product and strategy around how to do that, you know, probably through the end of the year. And so the benefit to you is that it frees up your plate yeah. to do other things. And you've said a few times, you imagine that, that this role will be filled by someone who's better at it than you. So the results should therefore hopefully be better if everything works out. So it's totally. less work from you personally as a founder and accelerated growth. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the kind of limiting factor for me doing it is just like mental space. You know, it's hours in the day a little bit because, I mean, I spend a fair amount of my time on on product and on still like some customer success stuff. But like just the mental energy to think about mapping out customer journeys for people coming into different parts of our funnel and different phases and stuff is just like, I hate to say, but it's it's more than I can do <laughs> on a regular basis. And and so like a person, if that's all they have to think about and they're better than me at it, then yeah, that that should make all of that better than I can do. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you called that out because it's. I, you said it's hours in a day, a little bit, but more than that, it's the mental energy, right? It's the headspace, and and that's a, something I don't know that a lot of people realize is that even if you work eight, ten, twelve hour days, you only have so much good glucose to go do deep work and deep creative work. If you read about you know big authors, successful authors, they write every day, but they only write for two, three, four hours. Very, very few writers can can be creative beyond that. It just burns, it just burns you and, you, and your your work becomes less productive, less creative. And then they switch to like doing email, you know, and doing writing letters and, and doing other things. And I feel like that's what you're talking about is, is that deep work of crafting the customer journey and doing all that comes at the expense of other, right, other deep work, you know, tasks that you have. And as as a founder, you only I, I bet you're all all you know already tapped out. You know, I bet your three, four hours a day, whatever you have of it, is filled with filled to the brim weeks at a time. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think I have a morning, maybe a week that I really devote to marketing. And that's whatever. It might be embarrassing or sad or whatever, but that's what it is. And that's kind of also why I say like if we had somebody doing this and they could spend four mornings a week <laughs> with their glucose then that's got to have a positive influence. Because, I mean, these people are all top-notch folks that we're talking to. As founders, I think those two to four hours of deep work we have in the day is something you should always strive for. It helps you to focus. It reminds you to ask questions. Things like, what is the single best thing I should be doing right now to drive the business forward? And if you know the answer to that, but can't work on that thing because there are fires that need to be put out, maybe it's time to hire like Craig's doing. 
Craig has learned a lot while running Castos as a non-technical founder. This past week, he had a nice round of learnings about the best ways to work with developers and designers when they decided to redesign their marketing website. It began when Craig made some conclusions from looking at his business metrics and asked his colleagues about the site. Yeah, like, so we're on like the seventh or eighth of the month right now, and our new trial count is up 40% over last month, um, according to our friends at ProfitWell. So I can just tell that like things are picking up again. Um, I try not to blame like our last couple of slower months on it being summer, but but I think we're doing just a lot of stuff in terms of guest posting, and we're going to start running Facebook uh, or AdWords next week, and uh, all of those things hopefully should should influence our, our kind of North Star metric, if you if you want to use that term, of just getting new, more new trials. Um, that's been our target for a while, and we've been trying to do a lot of stuff to move the needle there, and hopefully we're starting to see some of that pay off now. What made you decide to redesign the website? So the, the website we've been using was like a stock WordPress theme from when we launched the Castos rebrand two, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. And, you know, talking to a lot of people kind of in our world, they're like, yeah, it looks like a WordPress stock theme. <laughs> and one of the one of the, the, the metrics behind that that kind of helped me make this decision is we we ran some AdWords to the site and got a lot of good uh, like metrics in AdWords. So like click through rate and cost per click and stuff like that, but but almost no conversions. And so part of that's like, you know, the copy on the site stinks. Part of it probably is like the authority that we're relaying to our visitors and our potential customers is not strong enough. And so the new site really looks like a SaaS website. And uh, we've done a lot with like copy as well. We work with Leanna Patch. Um, but, but it's really just both. It's like copy, a little bit of positioning, um, but also just the look and feel and the authority that hopefully it, it kind of portrays to people. Have there been any like major challenges with the redesign or, or maybe a better way to ask that is like, what was the hardest part for you about the whole process of, of redesigning the site? It took forever. <laughs> it took six weeks probably, which is forever in my opinion for something like this. Cause it's not, we're not like starting a whole new site. Like we're taking all the content, just moving it over to a new look and feel, but, but we've done a lot of kind of custom stuff to it. It's pretty, this is pretty unique to our little world, but um, we're building the site in like Gutenberg in WordPress uh, and all like with blocks. So Gutenberg is a, it's not a page builder, but it's kind of like a front end editor in WordPress that's pretty new and controversial in the WordPress space. And I think we'll be one of the first WordPress-based SaaS providers to build their marketing site in Gutenberg, which is cool. So we're hoping to get uh, some some kind of WordPress press around this, but it actually is turning out to be a pretty cool tool. Um, but but we we intentionally kind of went down this maybe a little bit harder road because we are like a WordPress centered tool, and feel like we need to embrace the new technology. Uh, and with that, hopefully, comes some some press and some notoriety in the WordPress space. But but probably took us a little bit longer than using a template or something that would give us a little bit of an edge there in terms of like time to to shipping. But also, like, I'm still learning very much the the process of building products uh, and and designing and specking and handing off my thoughts to a designer or a developer. Um, and and we're 
we've come a long way, but we're still a long way from from home. And this is my first like big design focused thing that we've done. And so it's just like starting from scratch in terms of like how I communicate my vision to somebody that's really like a, a creative person. It's not, not as much like the back end nuts and bolts of transferring data, but just like how it looks and what the layout is like and how a user flows through the page and stuff. It's been like a really ad hoc process. And I know that slowed us down a lot. You're a non-technical founder who has learned how to direct developers, right? I imagine early on that was a real challenge. And would you say that these days it's much less of a challenge, that you've just gotten a lot better at it? Yeah, totally. Yep. Okay. And tell me about that that kind of transformation that you've gone through. Has it been like a mindset shift that you've had or... Is it just learning more about what it takes to build software? Like how, how have you improved if, if someone is coming into, you know, listening to this podcast and they're also a non-technical founder, what can you say to help them try to get there faster? Yeah. So I think to, to me specifically, the thing that has been challenging for both sides of it. So for me, and for our developers is is me giving incomplete information to them and expecting them to be mind readers and magicians and getting it every everything right the first time, um, which is just not fair and not practical. So all of the enhancements that we've done to our product process have been around me getting down on paper or in a wireframe or in a screencast or even really concrete examples of what I want and what I don't want. And here are some examples of things that I see in another app and I want to do something kind of like this. Um, as many like really like concrete zero and one examples as I can, because what we found is I would give them a really vague thing of just like, hey, let's go build this thing. And they would build it and come back and say, hey, isn't this great? And I'd say, no, it's all wrong. <laughs> this is not, a, not at all like what I wanted. And they would say, "What? this is what you told me. And and they're really good developers, um, not like working with some, you know, they're, they're not based in the US, but some offshore, you know, $3 an hour kind of people. Um, so they're really intuitive and, and tuned into what we want. But, but still, maybe I'm just really picky, but still... I was just not giving enough information for them to, to be successful the first time. So now I'm doing a lot more work up front so that then they can go and turn things around faster, which just gets us to shipping up a product or feature quicker in the end. And do you feel like what you learned with your developers or learning how to direct developers, which is a very common, um, very common experience, by the way, even as a developer myself, I remember the first time I had to manage another developer, I, I struggled to figure out how to communicate it. But do you feel like your experience with that translated to this design work? Or do you, or do you think it's a different skill set to communicate design specs versus technical direction? Yeah, I think that, I think that design is more of an iterative process. Uh, so it's not just, this is pretty much what it needs to look like. Let's go build it. But it's, you know, this is pretty much what it needs to look like. And then the designer comes back and says, okay, here's some, here's some wireframes. You know, how does this look? And you say, yeah, that's okay, but not exactly right in this way or in that way. And so there's always in, in my experience, and, and I'd love to hear it differently, but there's always some back and forth of like, yeah, if this button's here, then people will think that. And so we need to consider what the impact will be of this. That to me, that's just like the creative process. Um, and, and so I think probably what you're getting at is like, what did I learn from this that I would do better or different next time in a, in a design centered project is to, 
work like real time with the designer um, because it was very asynchronous. The the designer and front end developer we're working with is in the US and I'm here in Europe. So it's like six hours time zone difference. But I would, I would try to say, let's get on a call for an hour every day. And in three days, we ought to pretty much have like the wireframes knocked out and then you can go build the, the site. And then we should have like very few major changes from there. That would be ideal probably. Yeah, in my experience, designing is always iterative. Even with people I've, I've, I worked with one guy who designed like three or four different sites for me over the course of a few years and he could never read my mind. You know, it, you always yeah. had, we always had different opinions and tastes and um, I think that's, that's super common. Stay tuned as I follow up with Craig in our next episode and we continue delving into his biggest struggles, victories, and failures. Next week on Tiny Seed Tales. And I talk about some bad things on, on my own podcast, but not a lot. And that's maybe not fair because, you know, again, we have a responsibility as people who kind of share our story. We have to share both sides. Otherwise, you know, people are, are getting a false impression of what this is all about. <laughs>